0: Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our What's Happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy.
1: Well, how many of you um, this morning uh, know what a doppelganger is? You ever heard of a doppelganger? Some of you know what a doppelganger is? You've heard it? Put up your hand if you've heard, of a, what it, uh, heard the term doppelganger. Okay, I think most people... Doppelganger is simply somebody that looks like somebody else. It's most frequently, I think, used in the sense of like with a somebody famous. Like they're the, you know, their doppelganger is so-and-so. They look like somebody famous. So I actually have for us this morning some pictures of doppelgangers. And I, and I want you to guess who the actual person is, the real person. So our first picture here... Joby, you, uh, you could put up. This is Brian Cranston. He was actually, remember Malcolm in the Middle? That was a TV show was on a number of years ago. He was one, I think he was the dad in that show. Which one is the real Brian Cranston? Bryan. Who, who thinks the right? Put up your hand if you think it's the one on the right. Put up your hand if you think it's the one on the left. Okay, it is actually, in fact, the one on the right. So isn't that crazy? So that would, what we be, would say, a doppelganger. Looks just like him, does he not? Um, the next one, you guys know who this guy is? <laughs> Simon Cowell. Which one is Simon Cowell? How many of you think it's the one on the top? Put up your hand. How many of you think it's the one on the bottom? Put up your hand. You're all wrong. Neither one of them are Simon Cowell. In fact, when I was looking up doppelgangers, lookalikes for Simon Cowell, there are so many to choose from. That guy says America's Got Talent because he was actually on the show because he looks just like Simon Cowell <laughs> and did something. And, and there are, like, just, there's tons of people that look like Simon Cowell. It's really weird. Um, I don't know if... Anyway, yeah, it's just strange. One last, one last, uh, okay, which one? Who's this? Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. And which one is actually Tom Cruise? Yeah. So anyone think the left? Anybody? Yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty close though, is it not? The one on the left does look a lot like Tom Cruise. And uh, well, I just wonder how many, who, who are you a doppelganger with? Any of you, anyone know like, oh, this is, oh, I'm a doppelganger with someone. so Any of you have doppelganger with anyone famous? I, I get mistaken all the time. For the rock, Dwayne Johnson. So did you say A-Rock? <laughs> yes, Kevin. I do get mistaken sometimes for A-Rock because my name is Peter. Never fails. When you have the ways in the service with you, they're going to they're gonna get you somehow. Um, yeah, all the time. People want... Autographs. No, um, who, who though, who, let me ask you this who is one famous person that we should all look like? Jesus. Oh, you guys are so good. You're so good. Let me just give you a tip. If you're ever wondering, if I ask you a question, 99% of the time, it's going to be the answer is going to be Jesus. You see, ultimately, we have been created to look like Jesus. That's what the Bible tells us. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it actually says that we have been predestined, meaning God, before He even created the world, this was His plan. That we'd be conformed into the image of his son, shaped to made to look image. What is image? A, a look, a picture of Jesus. We should look like Jesus. And here's the thing. If you really want to look like somebody, the best thing to do is to live like them. That's going to help you start to look like them. That's why people mistake me for the rock so often. It's because of my training schedule, the way I eat and I emulate, you know. Um, but if you're going to look like Jesus, you should live like Jesus. And this morning, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see some pictures or some images, some characteristics, really, of, of who Jesus is that we need to learn to live if we want to look like Him. So, if you have your Bibles and there are Bibles in the seats all around you, you will need a Bible this morning. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's about more than three quarters, about four fifths, I would say, through the Bible. And, uh, and you will hit in the New Testament Matthew and Luke and John and Acts. In, if, you're in, if you hit any of those books, you're in the right area. It's, if you're using the Bibles in the seats, it's page 837, because um, I have the same Bible. So eight, page 837, um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we're going to pick up again in verse 35. We left off in verse 34, and uh, we're going to look this morning at, at living like Jesus. But why don't we take a moment and pray before we look at our passage this morning. Lord, uh, we know, we, we, especially those of us in this room that have walked with you for any length of time, that, that we are called to look like you, Jesus. And honestly, deep down, we want to look like you. We want to represent you well. And I pray this morning that as we open your word, as we study, as we see some of these characteristics, some of the lifestyle that you lived, um, I pray, God, that we would learn to put these things into practice in our lives, to grow and to um, develop into an image that looks like Jesus. And so help us now this morning as we study. May you teach us, may you speak to us, may you Change and transform us, I pray. In your name, amen. All right, the first thing that we are going to see is is to live like Jesus is to be a person of prayer. Chapter one, beginning in verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, he being Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place. Other translations say solitary or isolated or secluded, private place. And there he prayed. Well, if you remember the last time that we were in Mark, a couple weeks back now, uh, if you, do you remember the day that led up to verse 35? Do you remember this? It was a pretty busy and full day that Jesus had. It began at the synagogue. If you remember at the synagogue, uh, Jesus was there teaching and preaching. And what happened? A demon-possessed man begins to call out and cry out. And what does Jesus do? He casts the demon out of the man. After that, the synagogue, that same day, They left the synagogue and they went to Simon Peter's house where Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, had what? What did she have? A fever. And Jesus heals her of this fever. And the day still is not done at that point because if you remember, we were told that after sunset, once the sun went dark, once once it got dark, the sun went down, what does that mean? For a Jew, it means it's a new day. So the Sabbath was over. That meant that people could start to bring other people with needs to Jesus. This is all in the same day. He hasn't gone to bed yet, and we're told that that they brought many that were sick and that were demon-possessed, and Jesus began to heal all these people, cast out all these demons. I can only imagine that he's probably totally exhausted and drained. Would you not think that? After a day like that, from morning till who knows what time of the night, he was healing and casting out demons. In fact, the Bible even tells us, we'll see in the Gospel of Mark, at other times, when Jesus healed people, it says that there was actually a flow of power that left him. And so the idea being that there's a a draining that is going on as he is giving out. Now, how many of us would would blame Jesus if he slept in? None of us would blame Jesus for sleeping in the next day, would we? But the next day, what does he do? He he, he what? He doesn't sleep in. He gets up early, it says. Before, Before it was even light, well, it was still dark. He gets up early and he seeks God in prayer. You know, often prayer tends to be, it's kind of the last thing that we feel that we have time to do how many of you have ever thought or maybe even said i'm just too busy to pray you ever had that kind of sense or that feeling in your life you know i think more so it's been said before we're actually not too busy to pray we're actually too busy not to pray that's really the truth of the matter you see no one has ever had more demands or busyness in their life than jesus nobody and what was his priority what did he do prayer pray he gets up and he finds a private place time and time and time again. You can read through the Gospels. Whenever pressures got stronger, whenever things got busier, what did Jesus do? He didn't find a place to sleep. He found a place to pray. And he would dedicate himself again and again to pray. And you might, you might say, well, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. Let me suggest what verse 35 says to us. Get up earlier. How many of you are morning people? Who here is a morning person? Put up your hand if you're a morning person. Those of you that aren't morning people, take your hands and just start to grab their throat and start to throw. I'm not a morning person. I don't love mornings. I have to force myself to get up early in the morning. And so for me to say this, it kind of hurts. You don't have time to pray. Well, then you need to get up earlier. You need to make it a priority. I remember when I was in Bible school, and uh, and it was busy. It was, it was quite busy. I had studies, I had classes, I had different ministries that I was involved in, um, sometimes a couple nights a week. I was also what's known as an RA, a resident advisor, and so I kind of looked after the dorm and had some responsibilities with that. And I remember feeling when I was in Bible school that the Lord was calling me to more, to get alone with Him more, to be uh, in, in, a, in a greater place of seeking Him, and I remember one time I was talking to my mom on the phone, and I said to my mom, and I had a regular time where I would get up in the morning to go and pray and seek him. Oftentimes, I'd go into the chapel. Um, in our, at Bible school, there, there was a, what they called practice rooms in the bottom, in the downstairs basement of the chapel. And I would go, and I'd go down to the, the, this practice room, and I would just begin to seek the Lord. It usually looked like getting up early, going down there, um, waking up, at breakfast and going, oh, I fell asleep, and then going to breakfast. That's usually what my mornings look like. I'd be so tired. And I remember talking to my mom and saying, Mom, I just feel like there's not enough time. The Lord's calling me to seek him more, but there's not enough time for me. And you know what my mom's answer was? Get up earlier. <laughs> then, Peter, get up earlier. I was like, no, that's horrible. Get thee behind me. <laughs> right? Get up earlier. And so, you see, and you need to understand, at this point where I was talking to my mom, one of my responsibilities as being an RA for the school was that um, the girls in one semester would unlock um, all of the, uh, the dorms and the, the rooms and the buildings, the academic building it was called, the chapel, they would have keys and unlock everything, and, and everyone would take turns. So the girl RAs would do it one semester, and the guy RAs would do it the other semester. This particular semester was the, the men, the guys that were responsible for unlocking everything, and so we'd have to unlock everything at 6 a.m. And I had told all the other male RAs, there's about six of us, I said, Listen, don't worry about unlocking anything. I will take care of all of it every day. And they were like, Really? Deal. <laughs> I don't have to get up early then. Because I needed motivation. I need something to get my butt out of bed. Because <laughs> I'm not a morning person. And then my mom tells me, Well, you need to get up earlier. I'm like, Mom, I'm already getting up early. Get up earlier. And so I did. I remember one morning, I got up, I said, okay, I, I really feel like God's calling me to go deeper with him. I want to meet with him in a powerful way. And so I did. I got up at like 4.30 one morning, and I went and I locked all the buildings, and I went to the chapel, and I began to seek the Lord. And, and it, was, it was probably one of the most powerful experiences I've had as the Lord met with me. As I just saw his face, it took, you know, 45 minutes of just wrestling, and then the Lord came and met with me and empowered me and changed me, transformed me. Literally to this day, I'm changed because of that encounter. But what I want to mention is this, is really, we need to make it a priority to seek the Lord, whatever that looks like. Maybe you don't ever seek the Lord in the morning. Can I encourage you to get up five minutes earlier, start somewhere, and then stretch that to 10 minutes, and then to maybe 15. If prayer was a priority for Jesus, come on, how much more should it be a priority for us? Matthew six 33, we're told this, Jesus said to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, obviously, this is speaking about prioritizing Him, making it a priority of our life. But I think there, I've heard it said before, there can be something to be said as well, to seek first. The first thing you do would be that, to seek the Lord, to seek His kingdom, to seek, seek His righteousness. In fact, just this last week, um, the Lord really spoke to me, dropped in my heart, I was in my morning time. Um, I read a psalm, and then I kind of journal like a short prayer from that psalm, and then I kind of do my, my morning study and then prayer time. And this, this, this last week, um, I opened up to Psalm 110, and the Lord hammered me about this. Uh, it, 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 Psalm 110, you're, you're probably familiar with it once I start reading what the verse 1 says. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now we know this is actually, Jesus said this is actually referring to him, the Lord Yahweh God said to Jesus, is really what it's talking about, sit at my right hand. So I'm not trying to be blasphemous here, but the Lord heavily spoke to me and said, Peter, this is for you. I want you to sit at my right hand. This is what I'm telling you, to stop it. Sit at my right hand. And and I began to, just as he spoke to me, I couldn't even make it past verse one. I felt like this is what I journaled. I need to sit at your right hand, and the right hand represents power and authority, control. I need to sit at your right hand of power, of authority, of control. As I sit, you will make my enemies my footstool. That's what he said. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then I said this, and until that happens, I need to stay sitting at your right hand, letting you be God, letting you take charge. I give all my problems, my issues, my enemies into your hand. And it felt like it was just, you know, this was before I'd even started preparing for the message, but the Lord is just saying, you need to learn, Peter, to sit with me. That's where all the problem solving will go on. That's where the enemies that you may be facing in your life will get put underneath your feet as you sit with me, spend time with me. You see, the busier that Jesus got, the more important it was for him to spend time with the Father. Really, he, it was to, sp- to fill up, you could say, his spiritual tanks. How many of you ever feel a little bit run down or empty sometimes? Right? We all do from time to time. It's because we don't fill up. If you have a car and it keeps running out of gas and you can't figure out why, and, and then someone points out, well, you don't ever go to the gas station. Right? What do you think's gonna happen? You're going to run out. You're gonna run low on fuel. And in the same way, we need to be people of prayer. We need to be refueling and spending time sitting at the right hand of God. You see, when we prioritize prayer, we will live like Jesus also with proper priorities. Verse 36 goes on to say this. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Literally in the Greek, they actually it's, it's, it's essentially saying they hunted him down. They hunted Jesus down. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> Any of you ever felt that way? Probably moms. If you're a, if you're a mother, it's, it's kind of like everybody, like the kids, and then the, the husband's like, I'm sick. Help me. You know, right? Like, like, every, like, but do you have, like everyone needs you. Everyone needs your attention. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus gets it. And you know what? This is why we must spend regular time with the Lord. This is why. Because there's always going to be someone, something, somewhere that is urgent for you. Always. I, I mean, think about even here. This is a very valid thing that the disciples are coming to find Jesus for. Was it a bad thing? Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Why? Because they just experienced the night before this incredible time of healing and demons being cast out. Incredible ministry. What perhaps we would call the edge of revival. Revival. Can, I can imagine. what They find, Jesus, what are you doing? What do you, what do you think you're doing? Everyone's looking for you. Come on, like, like the poles are up. Momentum's on our side, right? It's like, like, like we're on the edge of revival. But do you think that God might have had an idea or a plan for what he had in mind for Jesus to do? Do you think that? Do you think God had something, a plan, for the, the father had a plan for what the son should be doing? Yes. yes, of course he did. Let me ask you this. Do you think God has a plan for you with what you should be doing some of you don't know well he does he does he would like to lead you and guide you each and every day you see look at look at what Jesus response is after being with the father he gets this incredible demand all of a sudden everyone's looking for you we need you you can't be doing this and what is the response of Jesus look at verse 38 and he said to them let us go on to the next towns this word towns in the Greek, I didn't realize this until studying it, but it, it means city, it's, it's towns without walls. Really small towns is what it's talking about, small little towns. He says, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Gal- all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. Can you imagine? It's basically the idea, the picture here is he's, he's at this time, he's probably in like a city like you could say Victoria, He's in Victoria, and he's ministering, and there's, there's all these incredible things. A healing crusade is happening. And you know what he says? It's, he's like, they come, they're like, oh man, this is incredible what's happening here. We just, we're, we're, we, we filled up Save On Foods Memorial Arena. It's packed out of the house. We, come on, what are you doing? There's more people. And you know what he says? He goes, mm, I was just with the Father, and we're supposed to, he told me why I'm here, and we need to keep going. I need to preach now. I gotta go to Crofton. No, no, hey, listen, those of you that live in Crofton, nothing against you. Kevin and Melway, way, but, oh, my parents aren't here, they're in the second service, so, I... <laughs> listen, we have actually some incredible people that live in Crofton, I, I lived in Crofton, it's a great place, uh, I love it, I'm just saying, this is kind of what's happening, he's leaving this incredible time of ministry to go to little hick towns, essentially, not that Crofton's a hick town, I don't want to, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're going to get a battle between Crofton, or... anyway, But here's the thing, my point being is that because he spent time with the Father, he knew what his priorities were, regardless of how good and tempting it looked to stay where he was, to be doing what he's doing. In fact, he tells us here, he actually says it in verse 30, he says, this is why I came. This is why I came. Do you know why you are here? Do you know why you are in Duncan? Do you know why God has put you in the place that he's put you? Let me just say that if you don't know what God's priority is for your life, the world and those around you definitely have a priority for you. And they will gladly pull you in whatever direction it is that they want you to go. And it often isn't the direction that the Father would have for our life. You know, often in my morning time, this is one of the reasons as I sit at the right hand of God, as I practice every morning now, trying to just connect with the Lord, I have a a notepad beside me. Because often as I sit there, all these things rush into my mind as I'm trying to meet with Jesus, got to do this, got to do that, got to do, and you know what I do? I just write on the notepad, whatever's coming to my mind, that can be taken care of later. This is time to meet with God. And I just write down, okay, those are done, and I get them out, because because there's all kinds of distractions, good things even, good things, and I just begin to just kind of let them out of my head, because this is time where I need to meet with you, God. And I just sit and I just take time to meet with the Father, to meet with Jesus. And what was, you know, I just want to go even deeper here now. What was the priority of Jesus? Why did he come? And what did verse 38 and 39 tell us? Why did he come? What does it say? To preach. To preach. He came twice, it mentions that, that he came to preach. Jesus could have spent, especially when he has these, I mean, if you've ever prayed for somebody and you've seen some dramatic, miraculous thing take place, that's pretty exciting. It's pretty, honestly, I, I'm going to say it's fun to be a part of that kind of thing, where you see breakthrough in people's lives. But, but, but the, the thing here is this, and in the Gospel of Mark, we can kind of get a little bit confused and think, well, Jesus came as a miracle worker, preaching was the side gig. Because the Gospel of Mark, we've already talked about this, it's all full of action, Jesus doing things, nonstop, Right? It's, it's a very fast, rapid-paced gospel. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus came as a miracle worker. He came as a preacher. That was his primary calling and priority was to preach. The, the healings and the miracles were actually the side gig, you could say. And and you know what? When he took time to be with the Father, he knew his plan. It wasn't man's plan for him. Man's plan was to drag him away to go heal some more people, to go meet some more needs. And he said, No, I need to preach. His primary ministry was not to heal the sick, but to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, like he says here. The gospel, 2 Corinthians, I have a passage of scripture here for you this morning. Chapter 5, verse 19, really kind of sums up the gospel. If you're wondering what it is ever that you, if you want to preach the gospel, it's kind of this. It says that, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. That, that's kind of the gospel in a nutshell. We all have made mistakes. We all are sinners, we all have faults in our lives, and we all are filled with guilt, perhaps, because of that. But the good news is this, that in Jesus, that can be paid for, and that you can have a right relationship again with God. That is essentially the gospel. But notice what that verse goes on to say. And he gave who? Oh, come on. You guys can't talk to, see the 11 o'clock service? They would be talking. What's that, Kevin? I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want. I give him <laughs> He gave who? Us. Come on, say it louder. Us. us. He gave us. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. You see, God has a very specific plan for each and every one of us, of course. specific, I'd say, detailed, about your family, about your work, about all those kinds of things. But all of us, I believe, had the same priority like Jesus had, and that is, you know what, to preach the good news. We're all called to preach the good news, that in Christ, that all humanity can be reconciled, that means made right with God, can have a relationship again with God. And you might be like, well, that's really scary because I'm not a preacher. I don't do that thing, Peter, that you do, you know, on Sundays where you stand up and you preach. Let me just say, this isn't actually what preaching necessarily is. Preaching is just telling other people, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That you know what? You've made mistakes, I've made mistakes, but in Jesus, those can be paid for so that we can have a right relationship with God. That's some good news. God wants to lead you and guide you, and he's made a way for you to walk with him. That's it. That's it. If you can talk, you can preach. And I heard all of you say us, so we can all talk. Right? We can do this. You can preach. You just got to tell others what Jesus has done, how he's changed you. But before we move on to the next point, I want to ask you this. Think about this this morning. How do your priorities, your priorities right now in life, how do they line up with God's priorities for your life? Do you even know what they are? Jesus knew what the priorities of the Father were for him. Do you know what God's priorities are for you? If you don't, I would encourage you, get alone with God and ask him, Lord, what do you have for me? What do you have even for me this day? I try to practice that just even this morning. I was praying, God, show me even this day what you would have for me. Lead me and guide me. Well, the third thing we see is to live like Jesus means we will live with pity for others. Look at verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Leprosy, you know, if you've read the Bible, you know that leprosy is is often found in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. There's a lot of talk about this thing called leprosy. Leprosy was a absolutely horrific disease. It was really, really, really bad, especially in those days. You know, actually still to this day, Um, I read online, I think it was the World Health Organization or somewhere I found this, there's about 200,000 new lepers a year still to this day. I had no idea. I've heard about 13 or 14 million lepers in the world still. Um, They've found there's much better ways of treating them and so that they don't suffer nearly as much as they used to. And we know a lot more about the disease and about, you know, that it's actually not really contagious almost at all. It's very minimally contagious. Um, but, But in ancient times... It was a whole different thing, and, and, and leprosy, um, it, it would first of all develop as kind of like a white patch on the skin, um, which I'm not leprous, by the way, in case you're looking at me and he's all covered in leprosy. I'm not. I'm just really white, okay? So, so it would start with this white patch on the skin that would kind of become ulcerated, and, and, and eventually that ulcer would just spread and begin to actually eat away and rot the skin, rot the person out. Um, it was a really horrible disease. Nails would fall out, their teeth would fall out because their gums couldn't hold their teeth in anymore, um, and, and, and their joints would deteriorate. It was a horrible, horrible disease. Uh, not only that, the fingers, their, their, their fingers and their extremities, their feet, um, they would become numb. They would lose feeling in the extremities of their body because of the lack of blood flow to those places eventually, in which point, you know, you, you could cut yourself and not even realize it. You could bang your hand on something or stub your toe or your foot and badly damage it and not know that it was even hurt. You wouldn't be able to feel it. And so your body would eventually just start to rot away. The worst part, it, would, it, would, it, was, it was horrible, even to the point where rats sometimes would nibble, not a word of a lie, they would nibble on the, the rotting parts of flesh that people had while they slept, or not even while they slept, they just wouldn't notice. In fact, um, medical missionaries in the last hundred years that would actually go and treat lepers today, do you know what one of their post-operative uh, and it's not, They would operate in sur- surgery, but they would send them home with something. You know what they'd send them home with? A cat. A cat to keep away the rats. Isn't that crazy? So it was absolutely horrible, horrible disease. Eventually, in its most advanced stages, even like, you know, the eyes would begin to rot out um, their palate so you couldn't eat. Really devastating. Uh, until you basically died. It was horrible. But you know what? Perhaps maybe worse than the physical suffering that people had to face was the emotional suffering. That a leper had to face. You would think people might have some compassion or pity on a leper because of what they were walking through, but, but they they would be quarantined from others. In fact, they were required, as they went through the streets and the markets, they were required to call out, unclean, unclean, so that people could get out of their way, to stay away from them. They would be ostracized from community, even the community of God. I actually read that rabbis were known to um, say things like there was a rabbi that actually said, if I know a leper's been to a market, I'm not gonna go to that market again. Like, they were just ostracized, pushed away. There was even a rabbi that said that they would throw rocks at lepers to keep them away from other people, thought they were doing a good thing. Like, they were just, it was horrible how they were treated. So emotionally, they suffered just greatly. And this leper knows that Jesus can cure him. But he says here, will you? Will he? Will Jesus cure? That's the question. He goes on, verse 41. Moved with pity. He, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him. And said to him, I will be clean. It's interesting, the word touch here is literally, literally gripped. That's what it actually says. Jesus actually gripped the leper. Some think that he might have actually hugged or embraced this leper before he even said, be clean. He could have spoken a word, but instead he goes and he touches the man. Can you imagine the healing that that would already just begin to bring to this, this man that hadn't probably felt a human touch in years, for however long. In fact, other gospels that, that talk about the same scene, I think it's Luke's gospel, mentions that he was in like advanced stages. It was, he was full of leprosy, is what he uses, the word. So he was very, he's probably nearing the end of his life, perhaps even. Others would look at this leper and be filled with disgust. But what does Jesus see? Jesus looks at this man he's filled with love, with pity and compassion for him. He could have healed him first. Think of that. He could have spoken a word, could he not? And healed him and then touched the man. But he doesn't do that because pity says otherwise. The only problem now is that according to the law of Moses, here's the problem. You touch a leper, you're now unclean too. You've just broken the law. Essentially is what's happened. You, You can imagine these these disciples are probably horrified. Jesus, what are you doing? You've just made yourself unclean. You're going to have to go and they'd have to have a whole process. They couldn't be around other people, all kinds of things before they were clean enough to be around other people even. What are you doing? He thinks. They would think. But you know what's funny is I can imagine Jesus' response is probably like, what do you mean, what leper? What leper? See, he gets rid of the evidence. <laughs> Look at Verse 42 and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. How how can you say I touched a leper? What what leper? What are you talking about? I don't see a leper, right? And the man's clean. His his loving touch, his command has made this man clean, like smooth-skinned again, his body whole again. But I want to point this out as well, that Jesus' pity, his compassion here, it wasn't just for the physical ailments that this man was suffering from, the leprosy. You see, in Scripture, leprosy is always a picture and a representation of sin. Leprosy represents sin and its effects upon us, that sin rots us to death. That's what sin does in our lives. It rots us to death. And in fact, the word that is always used, you can look anytime in the Scriptures, whenever somebody is, what we would say, healed of leprosy, it's never the word healed. It's always the word cleansed. Every time that a leper comes to Jesus and he ministers to that leper, it's always the word he was cleansed of his leprosy. Because if you think about it, our sin, we're not healed of sin, are we? We're cleansed. We're made clean of our sin. And as I was studying this 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 past week, it really struck me. You know, if, if leprosy is a picture of sin, this is what kind of the Lord kind of spoke to my heart and challenged me with. In verse 40, the leper asks if Jesus is willing to make him clean. Are you, if he's willing, he says, if you can, are you willing? And it just made me think, you know, if you ever wonder if you can be clean of your past and of your sin... What's Jesus' response? Verse 41, he said, I will. Be clean. In fact, commentator, commentator J.C. Ryle says this. He said, people are lost, not because they are too bad to be saved, but because they will not come to Christ that he might save them. He's always willing to make you clean. You need to know that this morning. In, in fact, he says in John six thirty-seven, Jesus says this, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Isn't that beautiful? Never. You can be confident this morning that if you want to be cleansed of your sin, you can come to Christ. He will always, always cleanse you of your sin. But what struck me is the rest of where this passage goes is that I felt like the Lord said to me, listen, Peter, I'm always willing. The answer for me is always, I will. But then he has a question for us. Will you? Will you? Look at, uh, as we go on in verse 43, it says, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof, or other translations say, a testimony to them. You see, Jesus is always willing to make us clean, to cleanse us and set us free of our sin. But you know what? He also asks us something Are you willing to obey me? Are you willing to do what I say, like he does with this man here? Yes, I'm willing to make you clean, but I've got something that I need you to do. I need you to go, first of all, to the priest and and to perform this thing. I think too often we kind of go to God kind of like a vending machine. It's like, here's my needs, and it's like, I need some of that, some of that, some of that. And we get our needs from the Lord, and then we just kind of go, okay, thank you, and we turn away and we go do whatever it is with whatever he gave us. We kind of live our life however we want. But the reality is this, is that Jesus cleanses us of all sin, but he also calls us to so much more. He laid down his life so that we could be cleansed. That we could be forgiven, but you know what? He also calls us to lay down our life for Him, to follow Him in obedience. Luke six forty six. Um, this is Luke's kind of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about to all these this multitude of people. Luke's Gospel, chapter six, is kind of that record of that. And this is what he says: Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's strong words. Jesus, I need your help. God, you're my God, blah, blah, blah. And then we go and do our own thing. He's like, why do you you call me Lord and not even do what I ask you to do? You see, when we don't obey, there are all kinds of consequences. But one of the key ones is that we're going to see here in the text is there's a tarnished testimony for Christ. Look at verse 45. But he went out so that the leper went out again. So he didn't obey. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. I find this amazing. A couple things here. Number one, I mean, Jesus commands this man to be quiet, and he goes and tells everybody. (laughs) Jesus commands us to go tell everybody, and we tend to be quiet. But ultimately, what I want to point out is this, is that this man's disobedience, what did it result in? It resulted in Jesus being forced out, we're told, to desolate places. And the Lord spoke to my heart. He's like, Peter, you know what? Sometimes your disobedience does the same thing. It tarnishes your testimony and it causes me to be pushed out to other places. I can't minister. I can't come and minister to people because because of how you've lived. He says, of course, I will make you clean, but will you obey me? Will you follow me? And I need to, you know, wonder sometimes, like how have I maybe hindered the ministry of Jesus because of how I've lived? Maybe I've driven his kingdom work out to the edges of life. Jesus says, I will, now will you. And some of us, we just choose to live in deliberate disobedience to him. He's saying, will you? Will you obey? I will, I'm willing, but will you? And well, finally, to live like Jesus means to live with power, power to forgive and power to heal. We're going to begin chapter 2 now. We're going to enter into chapter 2. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Notice again that priority of what? Of preaching. This priority here of preaching. Now we need to understand something here. You know, we have, we honestly, we've got some pretty big homes nowadays that we live in. And so, so, um, you got a picture this scene is like, take your dining room, perhaps, and put 50 people in your dining room, or your kitchen, and add 30 people to your kitchen, and then maybe your porch, have another 60 people on your porch, and then about hundreds of other people kind of milling around the house. Just, it's, the picture here is people are spilling out of the house. It's jam-packed. Verse 3, and they came, these, these four men we're going to see, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, because it's just so jam-packed, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these four friends, they, they desperately want to get their friend to Jesus, who's paralyzed, who can't walk, but they can't get in. There's too many people. And here's the thing, you know, when we think here that they carried him up onto the roof, we kind of go, my goodness, you know, I used to picture as a kid, like, you know, a ladder up onto my steep roof and going like, how am I, but, but we got to understand homes in Israel, even to this day, quite often are made more like this, where they've got a, a flat roof, right? So you'd have your living space. It's a, it's a very mild climate. It's not like the West Coast where we get lots of rain and cold and snow and we need sloped roofs to, to let all the, the different uh, climates kind of drain off or whatever. And they'd have a flat roof and it was an actual another living space often. And there'd often be steps or stairs to get to that upper level of living on the roof. And so we have this picture here of these men. It wouldn't be easy. There's four of them carrying up, whether they had a mat or a sheet, or we don't know what exactly. Maybe there's like one guy's got a leg, one guy's got an arm, I don't know. And there's kind of hauling this guy up onto the roof of this home. But you can imagine, they're so desperate to get to Jesus, they begin to dig. The roof would be, you can see there, it's actually like a grass. Sometimes it would be like a tile on the roof. But very commonly, it would just be basically wood beams that ran through. You can kind of see those little wood pieces sticking out on the side of the house. Those would run right through, and then there would be other pieces that would run the other way so that you could put, like, dirt, and, and they would actually grow like a grass, essentially, on the roof. And so they begin to dig through the roof, whether it's tile or whether it's, like, a dirt. And I can only imagine, I mean, they, they're, they're, there's, you're inside. Can you picture that? And, and the ceiling, all of a sudden, you see, like... You hear weird noises, and then all of a sudden you see, like, dirt falling. What's going on? You know, and then you see a little bit of light break through. You're like, what's happening to the roof? Or the ceiling, in your case, because you're inside. I mean, the homeowner's probably like, what is happening to my roof, right? Strata Council ain't going to want to pay for this one, you know, as they're digging through. And next thing you know, the light appears, and then there's a big hole. And next thing you know, there's rope. There's a guy with ropes getting lowered down. I mean, it'd be crazy. Totally crazy. But they are so desperate to get to Jesus, and it's worth it, what they're doing, because he sees their faith. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, sons, your son, your sins are forgiven. This is interesting. Jesus, it's, we're told, saw their faith. How do you see someone's faith? You ever thought about that? Do we, did anybody have a faith meter? It's like this big button on your forehead, and it kind of is like, you know, it's like, oh, well, they got lots of faith. You know, it's like cranking out, and the other people are like, he's got no faith, his faith is down. You know, like, we don't have a faith meter to show how much faith that we have. Faith is, he, Jesus saw their faith because faith is evidenced by works. That, that's, it's, it's evidenced by works, and their faith literally went to work, did it not? Digging through a roof and lowering a man down through. You see, faith takes action, and when we see the action, we can see the level of somebody's faith. I remember hearing the story of a couple farmers that desperately needed rain, and they were praying, God, send rain, send rain, send rain, and one of those farmers went out and planted seed in his field. There was no sign of rain. The other farmer was like, what are you doing? I'm praying for rain. Which one had faith? The one that took action, right? You could see his faith. He did something with his faith. And these guys, they do something with their faith. They dig a hole in the roof and they lower the guy down. They wouldn't do that if they didn't believe that he'd be healed. It'd be a lot harder bringing the guy back out with the ropes, would it not? Right? They're counting on their friend walking out of there. And Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith at work. Something for us to think about. Can Jesus see your faith? (laughs) What does he see of your faith? Can he see it in action? You know, what's kind of funny if you think about it, they probably at first, I bet you they're kind of thinking, our faith isn't working. We were mistaken. Because what does Jesus do? What did he say? They lower their paralytic f- friend through the ceiling, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But, but, No, Jesus, he doesn't get it. That's not his problem. Like they're probably looking through the, the roof going, no, he can't walk. His legs don't work. Like, you know, like, they're, they're, like, what's going on here? And they're probably thinking, like, he, he, Jesus doesn't get it. He doesn't see the problem. But the truth is, is that, honestly, sickness of our soul is far more serious than sickness of the flesh. Sin is truly the root issue of everything. Think about it. It's no good if your body is healed, but your soul goes to hell. Right? The, the, the true issue is the sickness of our soul. And, and that's truly the greatest miracle that we could ever ever experienced is that of being forgiven. We need to understand that, that forgiveness isn't the most incredible miracle ever. You know, you know, anything that God adds on top of forgiveness in his wisdom and in his will for our lives is kind of just gravy, just kind of icing on the cake. Well, will look at verse six now. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't actually voice it. It's in their hearts they're thinking this. And the scribes and the religious leaders, are actually completely right in their understanding that only God can forgive sins. And, and so what they realize is that this claim, by, by claiming to forgive this man, Jesus is claiming to be God. And if he's not God, it's true. He's a blasphemer, like they say. There's a real dilemma here. Either they must accept him or they condemn him. I mean, it's the same dilemma for all of us. Who is Jesus? We've got to come to that point. Who is he? Is he truly God or not? They also might be assuming that maybe he had said this whole thing about forgiving the man his sins because he couldn't actually heal him. And so he's trying to avoid that whole thing, perhaps. But look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Always a bummer when it's like your wife. They can see straight through to your heart. They know exactly what you're thinking. Or your mom, right? They know, they know what's going on. Jesus sees right to their hearts. And he says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, technically speaking, one's only four words, one's seven words, so it's obviously easier to say the four word, but that's not what he's getting at here. To say your sins are forgiven technically is easier because, again, there's no evidence, is there? There's no way you can tell if somebody's sins are forgiven, is there? Again, there's no such thing as a faith meter. Is there a forgiveness meter that we have? Right? Is there something that you can look around and see people and see like, oh yeah, they've, they've been forgiven, ooh, they need to be forgiven. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, we don't have any sort of way to physically tell. There's no evidence to it. But to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, technically that would be harder, would it not? Why? Because the proof is in the pudding, right? Either the guy gets up and walks out or he doesn't. Well, it's pudding time. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this miracle, obviously, is, is Jesus saying, this is going to back up my claim to be able to forgive. My, this is going to back up my claim, in fact, to be God. To do what only God can do, and that's to forgive. Well, does it work? Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Commentator uh, Larry Richards says this. He says, Jesus gave them and us an extremely important lesson. He did heal the man, but more important than the healing was the purpose it served. The healing was an external demonstration of how effectively the Son of Man, Jesus, can deal with our internal sin. Just as one word from Jesus could end this man's years of exile on a mat, one word from Jesus could end years of exile from God. And that's the truth for all of us this morning. We need to understand this that Jesus, Jesus has all the power to forgive and all the power to heal. And so, whether it's forgiveness you need or whether it's healing that you need, Jesus is here to meet that need. But here's the other thing. He wants to empower us as well to live like him, to do the same. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. We've been forgiven, and he wants us to be now forgiving as well. He wants to empower us to do what I think sometimes can only be done through his strength and his forgiveness in our lives. And And in fact, the power to forgive and even the power to heal, it's not in us. We know that. It's only found in Jesus. And I think in many ways, he's calling us to be like these four friends. Just bring people to Jesus. There they'll find forgiveness. There they will find healing. And so I just, I just want to kind of bring it all together this morning by asking you this. What are you doing to connect to that power? How are you connecting to the power of Jesus? Because it really starts how Jesus started his day. In prayer. In prayer. Connecting to the power source. I mean, isn't that all that, what, what all of us need to do to receive and walk in the power of God? We need to draw closer to Jesus every day to find that place of, of solitary, private, desolate place to meet with Him where He'll pour His power into our lives. And this morning as we close, I want to ask you this morning, who do you look like? Ultimately, are, who are you a doppelganger with? Do you look like Jesus in your prayer and in your priorities, and in your pity, and in your compassion, and in your power to live this life, is the image of Jesus shining through you. Listen, I think all of us probably this morning need to reconnect with Jesus today. Maybe you're here this morning, though, and maybe you're just saying, you know, I just need some clarity. I just need some direction. I just just need cleansing of my sin. Maybe you're here and you need a physical healing. Maybe you, maybe you need to receive the power to forgive this morning. Then, then reconnect with Jesus or connect for the first time to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're like, I could never look like him. I could never live like this. Yes, you can. Through his grace, you can do it. I want to invite you to come as the team comes back up this morning to close us off with a song. I want to invite us as we close in prayer um, to take some time, some time to, to use this morning as your solitary place to use this morning maybe the frontier as your your place of privacy with the Lord to meet with him to connect with him and I want to invite you this morning to come we're going to take time to to pray to seek the Lord we're going to take it's only gonna be like five more minutes it's the most minimal amount of time but it's the amount of time that you can say Lord I recommit myself to you I recommit myself to meeting with you to spending time with you I need you. I need to plug into you. I need your power. I need your strength. I can't do this in myself. And so this morning, as the team is going to lead us in a song here, can, can we maybe stand together as we close in prayer and just allow the Lord to speak to us? Lord, what is it right now? Lord, maybe it's one of those areas that you're calling us to reconnect to you in, maybe, maybe in our prayer life. Maybe it's in the priorities of my life. Maybe it's in my my pity and my compassion for others. Maybe it's in the power to forgive and the power even to to bring people to you to be healed, the boldness to do that. May you speak to us. May you challenge our hearts this morning. Lord, ultimately this morning, we want to come and we want to connect with you. We want to reconnect. We thank you, Jesus, that, that you don't change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Lord, whatever the needs are in this place, Lord, you are more than capable to meet those needs. And I pray, God, that we would be people that either dig through the roof ourselves to get to you, or that we bring people doing whatever it takes to bring them to you, Jesus. But Lord, may you reignite in our lives that passion and that desire to connect with you, to refuel, to find ourselves in a place of of just desperation saying, Jesus, I need you. I need to learn once again to sit at your right hand until you make all these enemies in my life, these things that I'm struggling with, just simply a footstool that I can stand upon. And So we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we invite you in these moments right now as we close to come, to fill us, to change us. Lord, as we connect with you, as we reconnect with you, Jesus, we just admit this morning that we can't do this. I'm reminded daily, Lord, that your word tells us in John 15 that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't do anything. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we can get through this life without you. So as the team begins to sing, um, maybe you want to just come and just kneel up front and just, just reconnect with the Lord. Lord, Maybe you want to come and just say, Lord, I'm I'm making you the priority again and this is my stance of doing that. As they sing, I invite you to come or in your seats to kneel down, whatever it would be, but come and just seek the Lord in your way. Reconnect this morning.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.